morning trail view please stand with me for the reading of this morning's scripture it's found in isaiah chapter 9 verses 1 through 7 but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish in the former time he brought into contempt the land of zebulun and the land of naphtali but in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea the land beyond the jordan galilee of the nations the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of the hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat, and if you have a Bible... I want you to encourage, encourage you to open it up, and you can turn to Isaiah chapter 9 if you want to. We'll get there in a little bit, but if you would, uh, maybe put that rhythm, a ribbon in your Bible if you have one, or a piece of paper, maybe the connect card uh, there, and then turn to First uh, First Samuel chapter 8. We'll start there. Um, if you are new here this morning, I want to encourage you, in your chair you would have found this Connect card. Uh, and if at some point during our gathering you wouldn't mind taking a few moments and filling out that card, we'd love to connect with you uh, sometime this next week or two uh, around Christmas and, and maybe get a cup of coffee or meet you or just see if we can love and care and pray for you in some way. I um, also want to encourage you, um, uh, there's some things you can check along here. If you need to put your faith in Jesus or follow him in baptism or if you're interested in serving or membership at Trailview, it's a great helpful way for us to connect with you and follow up with you on those things. And also, uh, a prayer card on the back. If there's things happening in your life uh, that you would like for us to join you in praying for, we will be ecstatic to do so. Uh, and this is an easy and great way for us to do and you can do a few things with this card. You can drop it in the black box in the back over there. You can bring it directly to myself or Pastor Brandon, or you can do it digitally with the QR code on the corresponding side uh, of that card. So, um, as we have been uh, over the last three weeks, we're now at the fourth week of Advent. And so Advent is a, a season, a 25-day period of time where we, uh, as Christians, um, it's not historically something Protestants have participated necessarily in, but uh, it's something we've adopted. Uh, we have celebrated the coming of Jesus, our promised Savior, for the 25 days of Advent, starting with December 1st to Christmas Day. And so at Trailview, during the season of Advent, we spend these remembering and rehearsing the story of redemption. And so we walk through from Genesis to Jesus, and we tell that story from piece by piece by piece. And we take some snapshot moments, and we try to fill in the gaps for you along the way. And, and so um, we're continuing that journey today, uh, and we will get uh, quite a ways in there. Uh, we'll leave a gap of a 
few hundred, four, five hundred years, uh, and then we'll close the loop on Christmas Eve. So I want to encourage you and your family to be here Christmas Eve at five o'clock as we finish this story that leads up to Jesus' birth um, this uh, this Saturday. So be here this Saturday, five to six o'clock. If you want to come early, we'll have a bunch of cookies and hot chocolate and decaf and regular coffee. You can connect and connect and love with one another, like all that stuff. Come early for that. Uh, we'll spend a lot of time singing, and we'll, we'll retell the story of our Savior's birth. Um, and so I encourage you to invite your friends, invite your neighbors, invite your family, uh, and be here this Saturday from 5 to 6 o'clock, and we will not meet on Sunday morning um, because it's Christmas Day, and we want to encourage you to worship Jesus with your families as you wake up early in the morning, or maybe not, if that's your family, uh, and, and you remember, reflect, maybe read that story on Christmas morning with your family. And so, um, so as we've been walking through this story, uh, let me uh, start by asking you a question. Uh, what often is the source of conflict in your life? Uh, when you think about it, like we all encounter conflict. What is most often the source? Maybe consider in your marriage uh, between husband and wife. Um, and you may not be the like knock down, drag out kind of fight people. Uh, maybe you're the like run and hide kind of fight people. Um, maybe you're the like yell scream kind of people um, in your marriage. Not endorsing either of those options, by the way. Um, in your marriage, uh, what's typically at the core source level of that conflict? Maybe at work. Between you and a coworker, or a friend, or a boss, or a colleague, somebody you work alongside of, or maybe has authority over you, or people that you lead, um, if you're in some form of leadership, what, what's typically the source of that conflict? What about if you have children? What's typically the source of conflict in your home if you have children? Uh, maybe uh, with your family, if, you're, if you are uh, a child, between you and your siblings, or with your parents, or with your, if you're married, maybe you're newly-ish married, and you're still trying to figure out, if you have been married for a while, you know this well, trying to figure out, what do we do on holidays? Because we have two families that have traditions, and now we have our family, and we're trying to figure out how we fit in all of this, and it sometimes can be difficult and cause conflict between parents and kids and members and cousins and aunts and uh, what about if we zoom out even farther and go, what's at the core source level of the conflict within our own country, even? Or, or our own world? Uh, I, I would like to make the argument today, walking through a few hundred years of Israel's history, that the source of conflict uh, most often in our lives, be it the most intimate relationships you have or on a broader, larger scale, is that we all want to be the king or queen. That we all want to be the king or queen. We all want to be in charge. And so in our lives, our kingdom, what we want, how we want it, when we want it, is at war or at odds and in battle with the kingdom of the other person. What they want, how they want it, when they want it. Um, if, you, if you feel that particularly in your marriage, I want to encourage you towards a book called Marriage. 
um, by Paul Tripp, he dives into this idea of in our marriages, oftentimes, used to be called, what did you expect? Um, And uh, he dives into this reality that when we live our lives for our kingdoms, we will butt heads with everyone else who's also living their lives for their own kingdom. Because there can only be one king. Often at the core of all of our conflict is this very idea that we want to be king. We want to be in charge. We want to be the queen. We want our way. We want to have authority. Or maybe we're not the person who wants to be in the driver's seat. We want somebody who we love and trust to be in the driver's seat. We want to pick the person who's in authority. Because we think we or they could do a better job than whoever it is that's in authority. So what happens? What happens when we put ourselves or someone else in the place of king? What happens when we live our lives with ourselves as king or queen? Or we choose for ourselves another person to sit in the place of king instead of God. What happens? Well, the story of mankind is this battle, metaphorically, uh, over a throne. Now, from Adam and Eve in the garden, it was, do I want to be king and do things my way, or do I want to love and follow God who is king? Who in his generosity gave us everything and one rule. Or with Abraham and Sarah, in the last three weeks, I would encourage you to go back and listen to the podcast, catch up in the story, where God says, I'm going to do these amazing things. From, from you, all the nations will be blessed through your offspring. Man, it's not really happening the way we want it to happen. Hey, Hagar, why don't you sleep with my husband Abraham, and we'll kind of jumpstart this whole process. How does that go? When they choose to do it their way, in their timing, and be king. It goes real bad. It leads to wandering in the wilderness, literally, with Hagar and her son, Ishmael. Later, with all of the people of Israel wandering in the wilderness as they didn't trust the king, God, to lead them in battle, to take the land he promised them, They wandered for 40 years in the desert. It's pretty much the entire story of the Old Testament. Is these people, mankind, specifically zooming in on one family that becomes a massive nation of people, wrestling with, metaphor and pun intended, Jacob wrestles with God. Israel wrestles with God battling within themselves and with God of whether to be king themselves or to trust God to be their king. To take power and things into their own hands, which typically leads to them wrecking pretty much everything, and then God having to come and rescue them, which isn't far off from us. Israel, as the people of Israel, the nation of Israel grows, uh, the story continues. So to catch us up, um, I'm going to encourage you, like I said, I'm not going to spend a ton of time here. Go listen to the last three sermons. You can hear about Genesis chapter 3 up to Abraham. You can listen to Abraham to 
Ruth and then last week Ruth, which Pastor Brandon did such a great job of walking through that beautiful story of redemption. Um, so go listen to those if you want to to catch you up. Uh, to catch you up to this point where we get in, uh, in the nation of Israel, when Ruth happens, uh, when you have that story, the people of God are led by judges. Uh, and so there's an era of the kingdom of God where they come into the land and they don't have a king, uh, but they have judges. They have people who God, their king, speaks through to lead and to lead them in battle, to execute judgment and to make decisions for the nation. And so God, their king, leads these people through judges. Uh, a few generations after Ruth, um, there's a conversation that happens between the elders, so think of like the 12 tribes and their like leaders, gather together with one of those prophet judges, uh, Samuel, and they have this conversation, which um, is in 1 Samuel chapter 8, 5 through 9, and it'll be up on the screen. So before we read that, I want to lead you into this in a particular way to kind of put this in the scope of the whole Bible. From 1 Samuel to Chronicles is the time of the kings of Israel. So you have God leads them out of Egypt, you have the time of the judges, and then from 1 Samuel to Chronicles, you have the time of the kings, uh, and then after that you have the pre-exile, the prophets, which are Ezra through Malachi, insert all those weird things like Proverbs and Psalm and Ecclesiastes and Solomon, or Song of Psalms, all those, and all the way to Malachi, and these prophets, some which prophesied during the kingdom, and some are in exile after the kingdom that fits in the timeline. But today we're essentially bookending the kingdom. So we're bookending from uh, the first moment when the people ask for a physical king to the end of the kingdom. And we're doing that from 1 Samuel to Isaiah. So um, bookend, the first bookend, 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 5 and 9 says this. It'll be up on the screen or you can follow along with me if you want. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old. Sounds, that's a nice thing to say to somebody. You are old, and your sons do not walk your ways, also known as God's way. They don't do good things. Not exactly the great way to lead into a conversation. You're old, and we don't like your kids. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, now appoint for us a king to judge us like the nations. But this thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them up out of Egypt even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are, uh, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So as they've gotten frustrated as a nation of people with the judges, uh, they look around at all the other nations and go, hey, all the other nations aren't like us. We have this group of judges, these people that God speaks to that lead and guide us, and all these other kingdoms and nations around us have a man who is a king who does all of this for them. We want to be like them. We want to be like all the other nations. So, Samuel, stop giving us judges and give us a king. Uh, and so, Samuel, good prophet that he is, 
goes to the Lord, which Samuel is an amazing character in the Bible. If you want to read about him, chapters 1 through 8 in Samuel, or the beginning, 1 through 7, uh, tell about Samuel and a lot of really amazing things. And First and Second Samuel is a lot of Samuel too. It's a really great dude. Um, but so, <clears throat> so they come and they say, essentially, which God puts very clear, um, we don't want you, we don't want any more judges, we want a man king. And in that, God makes explicitly clear what Samuel feels in this moment, is that they aren't rejecting Samuel, that they are saying, we no longer want God to be our king. We want a man to be our king. We no longer want God to be our king who leads us through these judges. We want a man to be our king. And in that, they have continued. It's interesting to make sure we notice this. This isn't a new behavior in the people of Israel. In verse 8, he says, according to all their deeds that they have done, that this is in step with everything the people of Israel have been about and like from the moment God led them out of Egypt with Moses into the desert. They have not wanted God to be their king. And so Samuel is told and instructed by God to give them what they want. Which, I just want to put this out for you. Um... We see this in Romans chapter 1. The judgment of God is oftentimes seen in him giving people what they want. They want a king and they don't want God to be a king for them. And so he gives them a king. So they spiritually shake their fist at God who's been their faithful king and ask for a real king, a man king. Um, and so God instructs Samuel to warn them. Uh, have you have ever been in that situation where you wanted something really badly and somebody told you, it's not going to go well? And you were in that moment where you were like put in a place like on a teetering, teeter-totter or a balance beam of like, well, do I fork in the road listen to this wisdom and warning, or do I do it anyway? That's the moment where the people of Israel are right now in the story. Do we listen to the warning, or do we do it our own way? Uh, I'm confident if you're like me, you've probably chosen your own way in your pride and reaped the consequences of your choices and benefit. Um, uh, maybe not. Maybe uh, you were wiser in those moments to listen and, and heed that solemn warning. But this is how the warning goes in verse 10. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. And he said, I'm going to point out some things as we read through this, because it's really interesting, it's really important. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take, hold on to that word. If you have your Bible, Draw a little line or underline or circle or highlight. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. So he's going to take for him. 
And in verse 13, And he will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. And he will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. And he will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. And he will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. And he will take the tenth of your flock and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourself. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. This is a hard, very clear, with lots of consequences, decision moment for the people of Israel. Like this warning of them shaking their fist at God and saying, we don't want you to be our king anymore, we want a man to be our king. We want to be like everybody else. And the warning is that this king that will come will take from you. He will take and take and take and take and take and take from you. And he will take all of that for his, him, his self, his will, his men, his officers, for him. This king you ask for will take your stuff, your people, your sons, your daughters, your servants, your goods, your flock, your everything, and you will be his slaves. In contrast to from this point forward, their king God has done nothing but give generously to an undeserving people. When they wandered in the desert, hungry, complaining, and angry, God gave them manna and quail and water. When they were faced against an enemy at their tails and a sea at the front, God gave them a way across. From step by step, from battle to battle, God has given these people everything that they have. And they shake their fist at him and say, we don't want you anymore, we want a king. And God tells them explicitly and straightforward, he's going to take everything from you for himself. And on that day, you're going to cry out. Verse 18 is a like, oh boy, verse. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, the king you asked for. You will cry out. For the king you chose for yourself. And because you have rejected your God, he will not answer in that day. And they did. And this time of the kings was pretty atrocious. There were a few, a few good kings. The most celebrated of which, King David. And a whole lot of bad kings. A whole lot of kings who did exactly what God said they would do. I mean, you literally have the best of their kings, David, who takes someone else's wife and then takes that guy's life 
as he sends him off before the chariots to die. In the metaphor of him taking that man's lamb, he'll take your flocks. But even the best of the kings of Israel, David, man after God's own heart, because he's repentant. Not because he's awesome, but because he's a man of faith and trust in God when no one else would. Throwing the stone, killing the giant. Everybody else is cowering in fear. The Lord will fight our battles now on a rooftop, lusting after another woman, hiding, covering it up, being the hero. I'll bring in this warrior of mine's wife and take care of her. It's a pretty atrocious time. And there's some good kings, and there's some times of really bad kings, and it only takes a couple generations of these kings for the kingdom to just straight up divide in half. To where you have the kingdom of Israel in the north, and the kingdom of Judah in the south. And so you have two kingdoms. The nation of Israel is no longer one, it's divided into two. And it's not long after that that the kingdom of Israel in the north is ransacked by the horrendously evil and wicked Assyrian army who come in and just destroy the kingdom of Israel. And all that are left take captive as slaves to these foreign lands. To be slaves. To be slaves of kings that they didn't want. That they didn't ask for. Because of their rebellion and rejection of God as king. And just a little while later, as the kingdom of Judah looks on at the Assyrian army destroying Israel, Babylon... The kingdom of Babylon rises up and destroys and burns the city of Jerusalem and takes all of its citizens captive to Babylon, into exile. That God's people promised this land, promised this kingdom, shake their fist at God, say we want a man to be king instead of you, and they reap the consequences. And then they're in exile for a long time. And God in his kindness raises up kings of other kingdoms to allow them to return and rebuild the city. And you get Ezra, Nehemiah, and the prophets of the exile all the way to Malachi. All of this leads us up to two realities, which will be our two points that we're going to process and walk through this portion of the story with. Uh, The first one is this. We make bad kings. Like, We make bad kings. The second point we'll get to in a second is God alone is the good king. So the first thing, we make bad kings. You guys ever seen the story Robin Hood? Maybe like the real one, like or the even the like animated one? Why do we like Robin Hood so much? Because Robin Hood stands up to the injustice of the oppressive King Richard, right? Why do we like stories like that as a whole? Well, in, in every story, I remember this, uh, I think it was last year, my kids in second grade were learning what an antagonist and a protagonist was. Every story's got an antagonist and a protagonist, right? At least good ones do. If they don't, it's not really worth telling, right? I mean, the plot holes in a story with no antagonist, it's like, what's the point? We're just like, la, 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 no problems. It's just not real. We don't connect with it. But the story of Robin Hood, we love those kinds of stories because you have this like 
underdog hero who sticks it to the unjust king who's robbing from everybody to fill his own pockets and do whatever he wants while everybody else suffers. Why do we like that? Why do we make bad kings? Well, simply put, sin. Why do we make bad kings? Sin. And you look at it and you're like, well, I'm not a king. Well, we talked at the very beginning about how all of us want to and live for our own kingdom. So if we want to zoom that down to like, you might not be like king with a crown on your head who sits on a throne in your bathroom, I mean, in your, in your living room. Like, you may not be like that king, but you want things to be your way. You want to make the decisions. You want to be an authority. And when we put ourselves in the place of king over our kingdom and seek to exercise our will and our desires over the others around us, sin wreaks havoc. In the same way it does on a large scale with kings like the kings of Israel or the kingdoms that we see or the other kinds of kingdoms, even if we don't call them that even today. There's a few ways that we see this. Uh, We see this we make bad kings play out in a few different ways. One, uh, the most clear is that we experience and we see injustice. We see people in power do atrocious, atrocious things. We have historically, in our own nation, in our history, in, in our world's history, in the Bible, uh, we experience injustice. We do, you can zoom this in on a, on a personal, close level. Um, but we experience and we see injustice, which is a symptom of sin playing out through those in authority, kings. Uh, we also see this play out in the fact that a lot of us have authority issues. underlining in, in, in a, a lot of people is uh, our authority issues. We don't trust authority. There's a rampant skepticism going across our world right now over the last, I don't know, handful of years where anything that's said, nobody trusts. There's something else going on behind all of that. You're not telling us the whole truth kind of skepticism. Why? Because we have an authority issue. Why do we as human beings have authority issues? Experienced. Us having innately in us this sense of like, I don't believe you. I don't trust what you're saying. There's more going on here. What'd you do with all that money? All those kinds of thoughts and things. Okay, you said we're going to do these things, but why? What's down the road farther? There's just this distrust. Why? Because innately we know and it shows in our actions and our attitudes that we make bad kings. We see this because kings are selfish. We saw that in the story and, and as, as God was warning the people. So you ever had that boss, that teacher, that parent, that family member, that friend, that sibling, that governmental official who mistreated you? What did you feel in that moment? Anger? Anger at injustice? 
I should not be being treated this way. Hurt. Pain. A welling up anger to fight. Helpless. They're in power and authority and they're doing these things. What am I going to do about it? A desire to flee, to run away, flight. Why? Why is it so common that we feel those things towards kings or leaders? Well, because we make bad kings. Under the aching of injustice and suffering, of being taken advantage of, of oppression from kings and authority, longing and desire. Why do we get angry at injustice? Because we have a desire for a king who would be just. Why do we get angry at oppression? Because we have a desire for a king who would not oppress but would be a blessing. We long for a righteous and good king. We long every time we feel the pain of bad leadership and kings, we long for a better king. And sometimes in our youthful zeal, we think that's us. And then hopefully wisdom and age comes along and brings us to our awareness that we also are unable of being that better king. This doesn't mean we should chuck all authority, toss it out. But it means, at the very least, if we are in authority, we need to be aware that we are prone to being bad kings. Which this moves us somewhere. What does it say at the end of that verse? And you will cry out. What does the injustice we feel because of mankind making bad kings do? It causes movement. It causes movement in us. These longing and these desires in us, this reality that we make bad kings causes movement. And it moves us, it should at least, move us toward God. Not towards someone else who's also going to be a pretty crummy king. Somebody whose ideals line up with us. But towards God. That it's a good, kind thing that God has created the world to where when we feel the sting of bad kings, it moves us towards something. But that thing is meant to be in our hopeless and helpless state, moving us towards God. Because we are created by God for Him to be our King and Him alone to be our King. Which moves us to the second point. God alone is the good King. You see, I told you we were going to bookend this story. Israel asks in Samuel chapter 8 for a king, for a man-king. They get Saul, Saul, fails as a king. 
Samuel anoints David, the least of Jesse's sons. David becomes the king, and from David we have uh, all sorts of kings that come about. Uh, and we bookend this time of the kings uh, by looking at Isaiah chapter 9. Not because Isaiah chapter 9 is the kingdom, it's actually before the end of the kingdom, but Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, uh, is this story of the kingdom's failure uh, rebellion against God, this prophecy of a future judgment and destruction of the kingdom, yet intertwined in it are these promises about a future king. A better king. The better king. And Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1-7 through 7, is a promise about this kingdom and this king that will come to a people who are about to be destroyed. So look with me as we walk through this. God alone is the good king. And this promise of a better king in Isaiah chapter 9, starting in verse 1. Verses 1 through 5, to kind of break it down for you, uh, kind of tell what life with this new king is like, and then verses 6 through 7 tell us about who this king is. And so verses 1 says, But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the later time he has made glorious the way of the sea and the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee, of the nations. Where does Jesus come from? Galilee. Uh, verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has the light shone. What is Jesus? The light of the world. Verse 3. You have multiplied the nations. You have increased its joy and the rejoicing before you. And they rejoice before you. And with joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoils. What does Jesus say? The harvest is plentiful. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For, the boot, for every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. What does Jesus say? Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What is Jesus called? The good shepherd whose staff on his shoulder fights off the evil wolves and protects and corrects the, shepherd, the sheep. Verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That in the midst of a moment in time when the people of Israel had seen the fruit of shaking their fist at God as their king and begging for another king, and God tells them how horrible it's going to go, and they're going to cry out for, a, for, for God to move because of the fruit of their rejection of God as they're, as they're 
prophesied that these kingdoms are going to come and ransack them and take them off. And they're going to, for generations, cry out to God from exile for God to hear their cries like he did in Egypt. And to move and to restore this kingdom and these people from exile. In the midst of all of that, God promises them a king will come. And that king will be unlike the kings that they've had before. That that king who is to come will turn gloom into glory. We see that in verse 1. Will turn darkness into light. In verse 2. Will turn war and death and captivity into peace. As the blood-soaked battle garments are thrown into the fire, unneeded ever again. Where the oppressed will find justice and peace. Where sorrow will be turned into joy. That's life with this king. A life that the people Isaiah is talking to have never known. A life that you and I have never known. How? By a king. The king. And this king that he describes is a child. Which is not super uncommon for a child to become king. I mean... How it typically happens. The king has a kid. Well, okay. This kid's going to be king. And as the story continues to unfold, it gets a little more odd or peculiar. And, and one of those is when he starts to describe the character of this king, of who he is, kind of the names that he carries, that he's wonderful counselor. It's like, yeah, I'll sign up for that king. But give me a wise king who's going to provide wisdom and counsel and direction. Mighty God, oh wait a second, (laughs) this is a different kind of king. He's called Mighty God. And not like the Pharaohs worshipped as God kind of Pharaoh or God king. That he's called Everlasting Father. That okay, this king's different altogether because he's always been. And he's called the Prince of Peace. That, that he comes and he brings with him peace to a ransacked, war-raged, oppressive, pain-filled, blood-soaked world. A kind of peace to where weapons of war are no longer needed, but are thrown into the fires to keep warm. Or as the other prophets say, are turned into plows to plant crops no longer needed for battle. He describes this king as as his rule and reign has no boundaries. I don't know about you. If you like history, cool. If you're familiar with it, or even in TV shows, every kingdom has borders. Why? Because there's other kingdoms. And they meet each other. And we call that what? A border, right? But this king's rule and reign will have no boundaries. I only know one king whose kingdom has no boundaries and it's the one who created everything. 
God. From him, this king will come through the line of David, the, the most beloved king. And that this king's kingdom and reign will go from that time and forever and ever and ever and ever. Then in the midst of this moment, on the back end of the time of the kings, bookend, give us a king, it's all going to go bad, it goes really bad. At the end of the time of the kings, we see God promise a very similar, just a more elaborated explanation of the same promise he made in Genesis chapter 3. Of a child that would come from woman, that would be the restorer of all that is broken because of sin. The promise that he made to Abraham, now elaborated as a king. So what is God doing here? God's telling his people how he will reestablish himself as king over his kingdom and over his people who've rejected him as their king. That God is unpacking for them that he will restore his kingdom and reestablish himself as its king. And the people hear this. And it's not, it doesn't happen in the next generation or the next generation or the next generation. And they go to Babylon and they're in captivity and they're slaves. They're being told to bow down to other kings, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know the stories. The story of Esther. Let's wipe out all these people and God saves them all to the point where God sends them back with gracious kings in those kingdoms. And even then, hundreds, hundreds of years, they wait for this king that will come. This king, unlike any other king, this king who is God himself, reestablished as the king of his kingdom. And then one day, in the city of David, Bethlehem, come riding in, Mary, on a donkey. No place to sleep, no place to go. And she gives birth to a special baby. A baby who was conceived not by, not by Joseph, but by the gift of the Holy Spirit, to provide the heir of Eve who would be the king of God's people to rule and reign forever and ever. And the first people who hear about this king are some dudes in a field with a whole bunch of sheep. And it says this in Luke chapter 2. Verse 8, it says, And in the same region... There were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. Gloom, glory, brightness, angels, stars, all the things. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for, I be for behold, I bring you good news of great joy 
that will be for all people. What was that promise to Abraham? All the nations will be blessed. Verse 11, And for unto you is born this day in the city of who? David, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And he will be, and there will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger, a food trough. And suddenly, there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts, an army of choir singers, singing and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those whom he is pleased. The king has finally arrived. The Savior King has finally come. Hundreds of years after the end of the kingdom of Israel, the king arrives. 